Imagine being one of Jesus' disciples, one of his 12 disciples. Now imagine watching Jesus be the main character in your life and your ministry for, for three years and to minister to so many people who needed a touch from God desperately. Imagine watching Jesus meet needs right in front of you as you're observing it. People would come to him presenting with, with, uh, with physical needs, with spiritual needs, and Jesus, um, he, he answered them with compassion, and he served them in love. Imagine you're one of these disciples, and you, you just hear the echo of people's voices from your memory. People saying things to Jesus like, Jesus, it's my, it's my son. He throws himself into a fire and cannot be controlled. And we're afraid that one of these days he will become permanently injured do not help us. It's a parent crying out to Jesus. Or Jesus, my daughter is sick. Please come soon. She's close to death. Just say the word. She'll be healed. I know that you can help us. If you'll just come or just say the word. Or Jesus, I've been blind from birth. Jesus, I can't walk. Jesus, help me to see. Jesus, I have an issue where I can't stop bleeding and the doctors can't help me. And People treat me as if I'm unclean and keep me on the outside of society. Jesus, I have leprosy, and there's no cure, and I'm permanently out of society and having to live among others who are sick like me. Please, can you do something? All these, these requests. Jesus, my, there's an unclean spirit that's causing damage to my loved one or causing damage to me. All the way from those needs to the seemingly more mundane, Jesus... We're hungry, and we're far away from any food or water source. How will you feed us, Jesus? The resounding message in Jesus' ministry that we read through the Gospels is, um, Jesus, we have a real-world problem. Jesus, help us. After the miraculous catch of fish uh, story in John 21, this is what it says about Jesus' ministry. So imagine having observed this for three years in direct contact. It says, Jesus did many other things as well, things like the miraculous catch of fish. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. Imagine being that, that close disciple that saw all this right in front of you. You've seen a lot. So many desperate needs, so many desperate people. And you watch Jesus engage each of them with compassion. And the word says that his heart went out to them. We learned that in Gentle and Lowly, that his, his guts churned inside of him with compassion for those who were hurting and needed salvation and healing. You know, Jesus is the man. He is the one you follow. When you're with him, you are waiting in hopeful expectation. How is Jesus going to handle this situation? You've never seen this one before. You ask yourself, how does he always seem to know just what God wants to do in this situation? Imagine hearing his teaching that confused so many people. Then later around the campfire, like, Jesus, what was that all about? We're sorry, we don't understand it either. <laughs> Not only did you confuse them, we're, we're confused. Can you explain it to us? Imagine Jesus responding to your faith and question by sharing with you what's going on. Do you get the sense that Jesus is drawing you into his kingdom promise? That Jesus establishing a kingdom of God on the earth where the rule and reign of God is exercised where there's justice, mercy, compassion, healing, hope, salvation, forgiveness of sins. And you're a part of it. 
as time goes on, Jesus seems to desire more and more that you join him in this ministry of compassion. But you have doubts that you will never know what to do, just like Jesus does. Now, are you really up for this? I mean, he's Jesus. He's the one that does this stuff. Can we do it? But Jesus gives you a chance. He sends you into ministry situations among the needy, the same people he's been reaching out to. And to your surprise, you have some of the same success Jesus had as you serve in Jesus' name. You see the demons responding to you. You see healings. You go back and report to Jesus. I can't believe it. This is amazing that we're able to do these things. The demons are listening to even to us, not just to your voice, but to us. And Jesus, um, he's, he's excited for you, that he reminds you. Don't be obsessed with this newfound effectiveness. Don't be obsessed with what you can do. Just be grateful that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are saved. Yeah? And so Jesus, um, Jesus gives you a perspective. Even as you're succeeding and following him in these baby steps, he gives you perspective. Don't let it become all about you and your ministry. It's about the kingdom of God. Just rejoice that you're saved as well. You are a humble servant, loved and used by God. It is God who's working through you. God is the one empowering you by his spirit. Now imagine the stress and confusion as Jesus begins to explain over and over again that he's going back to the Father, that he's going to die and rise again. He explains it to you time and time again. And you feel anxiety, you feel worry about and we're not ready for this, Jesus. We're not ready for this. We don't fully understand. But Jesus is saying things like he's going to send his Holy Spirit, his, his spirit, who he is, who God is, into believers. And he plans, his plan is that his ministry that he's been doing of compassion and healing and touching people is going to be done by you and by the church that he calls his body. That's how bold Jesus is talking about this that you are the body of Christ. You are going to become for the world what I have been for the world, but in many, many people working together by the power of the Spirit. It's just stressful. It's, it's, it's confusing, but it's, but it's exciting. You don't understand it because Jesus is just in his low 30s. He's 33 years old. Why is he talking about going and leaving? I think we need some more time, Jesus, you know? This is what Jesus' disciples experienced as they were following him. And you saw in Matthew 28, the Great Commission that we read in the beginning of service, some doubted, even at the very end, when Jesus rose from the dead, came to them, and shared, this is your mission now. Keep doing my mission. Some doubted. But Jesus said, I'm with you. I am with you. Do not be afraid. Just like God has said throughout the Old Testament history to people like Joshua and Moses, I'm with you. The presence is with you. Jesus has had a mission statement his whole life that's driven him, and that's to seek and save what was lost. And now he's passing it on to his people, the church. We are his body. We get to do the work of Jesus in Jesus' name. And just as in Jesus' day, it's not about us, it's not about our ministry and what we can or cannot do in our power. It's all about God and his glory in meeting humanity's great needs, both physical and spiritual, and any other need we can imagine by his spirit, in his strength, and most importantly, sharing the provision that Jesus has made for the forgiveness of sins for anyone that comes to Jesus and confesses their sins and receives forgiveness, salvation, and everlasting life. 
with all this in mind and picturing yourself in the, the disciples' shoes, listen again to the final instructions Jesus gave to his disciples, first in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8, and they're going to be up on the screen for you. Then the eleven disciples, because Judas was now no longer with them, went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then in Acts 1.8, when Jesus appears to the disciples, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of These scriptures, along with Jesus' example and the examples of all of those Christ followers who have come before us, serving in Jesus' name and expanding the kingdom of God, um, these scriptures and these examples are, are what drive us at New Life to seek to do the mission that Jesus began. To take on the great, com the great commission and work towards making it the great completion of reaching the whole world to the ends of the earth uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ with the, the good news of God's victory and salvation from sin and death and the kingdom of God coming. These words are for us. This great commission is for us. And that's why we are seeking to engage with people in our community who have real physical, spiritual needs that Jesus wants to meet through his body in our day. Where some of us doubt and are still are bewildered like the disciples are confused, still his grace is there for the Today we're going to be hearing from, from a friend of our church, Karen, uh, from something called Care Portal. And we're going to hear about a, a way to, to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to really touch people in our community who have deep needs, not only their physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well. Um, in our church, we're, we're continuing to, to serve at the soup kitchen. On August 19th, you can sign up to serve in the soup kitchen in the lobby. Our VBS that we're having is, is for reaching our community and inviting our neighbors in. Our benevolence ministries, where we help with people's needs, the mission teams we heard from like last week, uh, all these things, the purpose of them is to make Jesus known, to make disciples, and the power of the Holy Spirit, like Jesus said. And we do ministry in Jesus' way, as his representatives, uh, with compassion, with grace, and with truth. It's all Jesus' great commission, and working towards leading that great commission by the power of the Spirit being the embodied body of Christ, animated by him in all of our unique ways to serve him and his disciples, to compassionately reach out and touch individuals and groups of people with the love of Jesus. So in this, in this coming year, there will be many opportunities to continue to make disciples, to, to move forward, but one of the ways the elders have been praying about along with the leadership of the church is through this amazing gift called Care Portal. It's a way for us to compassionately do the ministry of Christ. So I'd like to invite my friend Karen uh, forward and I want to pray for her as she shares with us. Give her a nice welcome. See, you already succeeded 100%, you know? I love it. You got the applause <laughs> first. So let's just let's pray for Karen as she shares with us. Heavenly Father, we have heard, um, we have identified with the disciples, we have seen what you do in the scriptures and we want to be your hands and feet so badly. We pray that you would uh, 
make us ever more fulfilling your great commission and touching our city and our, our people we rub shoulders with every day with the love of Jesus and most importantly the, the gift of love and relationship that you offer in the midst of all of our many needs. Uh, bless Karen as she shares with us and help us to hear what you are saying to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Good morning. The title of my sermon this morning is The Good Samaritan or the God-Focused Church. We're going to look at a lot of things involved in caring for the poor and the elderly and kind of on those two kind of topics. It's, so this is my family. I want to take a minute and just share a little bit about who I am. I am the single mom of four kids, and I realized as I sat here looking and thinking about this picture that my daughter in the middle there, Anna, uh, got married a couple weeks ago, and I have a current picture that includes her husband. Um, so I'm going to have to apologize to my son-in-law. But these are my four children and my oldest long-term girlfriend. And uh, they created the little adorable thing on the side, my granddaughter, who brings me much joy and reminds me every day of the goodness of God and the importance of children to him and the importance of kids belonging to God. So I come from a background of having been and served around churches for 25 years. Um, I have a background in public health and a master's in theology. None of that is really important as much as it is that I listen to God and I say yes when he tells me to go do something. And right now what he has told me to do is to go help these little children that are struggling with life. And so I want to start with the verse that has confused my life for most of my life. And it is the one from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 28. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when God chose you. Not many of you were considered wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you belonged in important families. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the things of the world that are common and looked down upon. God chose things considered unimportant to do away with things considered important. This verse has always challenged me. I mean, since I was little and heard it, this is sort of the verse that God's gone, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Why do I do that? You know, why do I choose foolish things to confound the wise things? And as I've gotten older, I've realized that God chooses the things he values to remove the things he doesn't. And that it's our problem that they look foolish to us, the things that he values, and the things that we value that look wise to us are the things he doesn't. Well, he doesn't care about our degrees. He doesn't care about our cars. He doesn't care about our houses. He doesn't even really care about our church building. He cares about our hearts cares that we're doing the things that he has called us to do, that compassion and mercy and grace. And he is going to take whatever it, he needs to to help us get to a point where we are willing to say yes to being his hands and feet. He is going to remove everything we consider wise to get us to do the things that we consider foolish so that his love, mercy, and grace which is what he values, goes out into the world. If you think about it for a minute, God had everything, right? 
he lived in unity, right? He had the Trinity, he had friends, right? He was up there in heaven. He's got everything he needs. And he decides that what he needs is an us, right? Us, messy us, the people who can't do this, you know, a good two days in a row, that yell at our kids, that are rude to our spouses, that are ignorant of our neighbors. Like, he thought we were the thing he needed in the world. And right there, it should tell you that God uses the foolish things, <laughs> right? Because he thinks we're valuable. And he thinks everyone is valuable. Not just the ones sitting in church on a Saturday or a Sunday or a random Wednesday night. Every single person he sees is the most valuable thing, even more than the sparrows, you know? He keeps his eye on the sparrow. He's watching over me, but he's watching over the neighbor down the street who's... Uh, practicing some weird voodoo religion that is also trying to find the real God in that process. Um, so what does God want us to do? It comes from Micah 6. I always love to go back and forth between Old and New Testament because I think God hides all these wisdoms in both sides. So Micah 6, 8. The Lord has shown you what is good. He has told you what he requires of you. You must act with justice. You must love to show mercy. You must be humble as you live in the sight of God. That's what he wants out of us. Justice, mercy, humility. And so the next question is, what, what does that look like, right? Where do we find a story that talks about somebody showing love and mercy and humility? And we find it in Luke 10 as the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, most of you know this story, I would assume, um, but we're going to go over it really quickly anyway. Um, so in reply to who is my neighbor question, Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So imagine he's walking from Saratoga Springs to Burnt Hills. Okay, let's put this in real world things, right? He's walking from Saratoga to Burnt Hills. And he's attacked by a band of robbers and they strip him of his clothes, and they beat him, and they leave him for half dead. And here comes Pastor Nathan walking down the road, getting his exercise. And he sees the guy, and he looks over, and he goes, oh, I don't want to deal with that. And he comes way over here and walks down the other side. And a few minutes later, God is sending out one of his elders from this church. And he's walking down the street, and he looks over, and he goes, oh, I'm not dealing with that. And he walks way over here. And then, here in Saratoga County, up walks one of those people practicing New Age voodoo. And he sees the guy, and he stops, and he picks him up, and he takes him to a local place to get fixed. He takes him to urgent care, maybe, or in a more modern time, gets him fixed up, drops him off at a hotel, says, hey, if he needs anything else, I'll come back, I'll pay for it. Right? It's a great story wrong people serving, right? The wrong people getting involved. If you go back to the original story and you understand some of Jewish law and testimony and the way Jewish people lived, they lived very different from their neighbors. They had very high standards in terms of their purity. They didn't expose body parts. They didn't eat certain foods, right? And we took his, the church elders to this poor man who was beaten, this Jewish man who was beaten, left his care in the hands of someone who didn't understand and respect his faith. 
right? The Samaritans are not eating kosher. He's going to be fed food that would get him kicked out of his temple if they found out. His wounds might be in body places that would not be allowed to be exposed. But now he has to get care from people that he doesn't know in areas of his body that he would never expose to anybody else, right? We need to understand that this, while it looks like a thing we want to do, right? We all want to be the Good Samaritan. But unfortunately, we tend, as a church body, to be the Levite and the priest. We tend to kind of close our eyes, right? We tend to kind of shield ourselves. We don't necessarily stop at the side of the road to help somebody whose car is broken down. Or a mother in Walmart who's looking for her two-year-old who wandered away. Right? We, don't, we don't stop and help. We don't tend to do that. And that's so important because that's what actually God called us to do. He called us to come and bring mercy and bring justice. We don't do it well. And we haven't done it well since the United States was formed. And just in case you didn't realize, since we work alongside the child welfare system, in the 1800s in New York City, the Dutch Reformed Church was overwhelmed by the number of orphans and widows in New York City after an illness went through and wiped out a lot of people. And they suggested to New York City's government that the New York City government take over child welfare and caring for widows that the church would no longer be involved, that the government could handle that. We actually gave it up willingly to the Samaritans. Even if you work in government, you've got to know that the government is not the best place to care for broken, hurting, wounded people. And especially not New York State government as it looks today, right? They got, there's just no connection to broken, hurting, wounded people in our government, right? But just in case you think that, well, you know, God, it does say that we need to pray for our leaders and God sets our governments in place. So clearly, you know, God thinks government is a good thing, right? No, no, right? So if we go back to 1 Samuel, God warns Israel through Samuel. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel says. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers and make them run before his chariots. Can you imagine? I mean, your job is to run in front of chariots being pulled by horses. That's not even logical. Like, that's just the dumbest job ever in the face of the earth, right? But your king's going to make you do that. He's going to make your kid do that. Some will be generals and captains in his armies. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. Some will make weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and his attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and your donkeys for your own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but your God will not help you. While God sets up governments, 
and puts people in power, he doesn't believe in a government system. He believes in a system run by the churches. He created judges who worked along the temple officers and the priests to make sure that the country ran well because that was the system he believed in. But we crashed it and burned it. And we crashed it and burned it big time in the United States. And unfortunately, money of much of the world has followed in that process and given over care of the poor and the needy to the government instead of taking it on ourselves. Right? <laughs> I don't know how many of you are as old as I am, but I remember, I actually remember Ronald Reagan saying this in a, uh, in a speech one day. The, nine, the top nine most terrifying words in the English language, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. There is nobody who wants a child protective worker to show up at their door. Nobody wants a police officer to pull them over while they're driving. Nobody wants the government involved in their lives. You'd really prefer not to deal with uh, April 15th and tax day, you know? Right? All those warnings about all the things that, you know, the king is going to take from you, that happens on tax day in our world, right? Government comes and takes everything they need, right? Nowadays in the U.S., the government has taken almost all the social welfare concerns. Now, we do have the Catholic Church who still is stepping in in some ways. They run some hospitals and programs for the poor in our area through Catholic charities, and they care for injured and kids with St. Anne's and St. Catherine's. We have the city missions in Albany and Schenectady and Open Door up in uh, Glens Falls that all care. In the last 10 years, the Methodist Church has made a huge push towards what they call social justice, but stepping into this world and trying to help and trying to serve, right? But for the most part, especially here in New York State, we aren't well received. We aren't supported. We aren't encouraged to get involved. They actually encourage the church to sit down and be quiet, right? We put a food pantry into our church in New York State, but we can't tell somebody coming in for physical food that on Sunday morning we can provide them with spiritual food. We're not allowed to. If they find out we did it, we lose our right to give out food in New York State. <laughs> it is really, really bad. So we ended up leaving this huge mess especially the huge mess of child welfare in the hands of the Good Samaritan, the government who doesn't get it. About nine years ago, there were a bunch of Christian organizations uh, helping children in a worldwide crisis. They were out there helping churches all across the world to create orphanages to care for kids in crisis. One of those companies was a, a, a nonprofit called Global Orphan Project. Their executive director, Scott Platter, was on a flight between Cambodia and Thailand when he heard God say to him, why are you flying around the world and not dealing with the orphans in your own country? And Scott came back and he said, we don't have orphans in our own country. What's he talking about? Like, I've seen street kids like living on the streets. Like, we don't have that in our country. And he came back a little bit annoyed at God. He wanted to prove God wrong. That's always a good way to start, you know? Because <laughs> you're never going to prove God wrong, but God's going to really use that, you know? And he started really doing some research. And one of the things that he discovered in this process 
is at that time, 63% of kids who entered our foster care system were there for poverty-related issues. They didn't have a bed. The parents couldn't afford a car seat. There wasn't enough food in the house. The, uh, there were bed bugs or cockroaches or mice and rats in the home. And so the government would declare that an unsafe condition and we moved the children into foster care. But because there hadn't actually been abuse, children would sit in the foster care system until they got to 18 or 21, depending on your state. And then they would age out as orphans, unconnected to their original biological family who loved them and wanted them, and unconnected to the foster family who had tried to care for them. And we created our own set of orphans. On top of that, we had all of those kids who were actually abused and harmed and all of those kinds of things involved in the system and kids who'd lost parents and all of that just became this huge problem. And he said, we need to address it, but we're not gonna address it here by creating orphanages. We have a system in place called the foster care system, called the child welfare system. We need to find a way to get churches to engage in that world. And so he created this technology platform called CarePortal. It's a, just a software program. Caseworkers from the county enter a request into the system that says, I have a family that's struggling. And if you can help with a bed, I don't have to take this child out of their home. If you can provide that mom a stroller, she can get to her doctor's appointments. If you can provide a car seat for a child that fits him appropriately, we don't have to remove him from his home for unsafe, for his safety issues. And so he created this technology platform and on the receiving end were the churches. Churches who signed up, who said, yes, we wanna help. We wanna step back into this world. We wanna be that God-focused church with a love and a passion for these kids. And so all across the world, we now use this care portal technology platform here in the united states it is in 28 states and expanding um, but we use this platform for the church to get to be the church we get to go back to that good samaritan story and not walk across the street and step right into that world and that is such a cool and amazing thing and even here in new york state we are still allowed to be the church when we do that. We get to go and serve that child and that family, and we get to go, can I pray for you? Would you like a Bible? Would you like to come to church? Well, almost every family we encounter says yes to the prayer, and they mostly take the Bibles. I don't know what they do with them afterwards, but they're there. They don't always show up to the church. But that's okay. God's working. He's, he's clearing. He's starting to make that path straight and strong and begin to connect that person to a concept that the God of Christianity might love them and care about them. As a church, not this church, but as the church, we have done a horrible job in the last 20 years of convincing the world that we serve a God who loves them. Right? We serve a God who has lots of rules and regulations, and you don't follow them, and so God doesn't love you. Right? And that's not true. 
God loved us when we weren't following the rules and regulations. God loves us now that we become his children and we're not following the rules and regulations. <laughs> right? God loves them. This isn't an issue. I mean, God created rules to keep us safe, to keep us healthy, to keep us feeling loved and protected and secure. Not so he could have a reason to hate us. Not so he could have a reason to hate somebody else. Um, so we brought my organization, which is called Justice for Orphans. We're a local nonprofit. We brought this care portal system here um, five years ago into Schenectady County. And it was most clearly a move of God. On a particular weekend, we had a Schenectady County caseworker at a con in an international conference out in the Midwest who was hearing from the other caseworkers about this amazing technology platform called Care Portal that allowed churches to help meet needs where their needs couldn't be met any other way. And she came back and she said, boy, I would love to have that program here. And at the same time, our executive director was at a conference somewhere else hearing about how this technology platform was being used all over the Midwest and having all these results. And she said, oh, I would love to bring that platform here to New York State. It's not going to happen. Our counties are not going to agree to work with us. Our state is not going to agree to work with us. They're going to take out the part about we get to talk about God in this process. It is not going to work. And then Liz and Sandra met each other. And Liz said, would you consider bringing the platform? I can get it passed into Schenectady County. And Sandra went, sure, why not? And sure enough, five years ago, in November, we started our first requests in Schenectady County. And then we opened Albany County, and then we opened Greene County, and then we opened Rensselaer County, and last month we opened Montgomery County. And at the same time, we worked with an organization called Every Child to work in Buffalo, and the Hub 585 to work in Rochester, and Lead NYC to work in New York City. And we were doing so much work that last year, New York State looked at it and said, hey, wait, this is actually working. Like, our families don't move. Like, the families that are in crisis don't go from crisis CPS call to long-term prevention care. They move out of our platform, and they stop needing our help when we use this program. Like, the arrival of a bed shouldn't take them out, but for some reason, they get it together. Now, most of those families don't show up, but God is in there working on them and helping them get it together, right? So that later on, down the line, they're going to be able to come back to God at some point. And so New York State last year signed a contract that said, we can go all the way across the state with this program. All 66 counties are targeted to launch over the next couple of years. And Saratoga County is scheduled to launch sometime soon. The county has agreed to use the services, um, and we are working on getting a training date and a launch date. I would love to see us launch by the end of August, but it will definitely happen sometime in September that we will launch Saratoga County. If your church signs up, which I'm hoping it will, I mean, it certainly seems like it will, but <laughs> you will be the 13th church in Saratoga County. Now, I have to tell you, that doesn't sound really impressive when you realize there are like 136 churches in Saratoga County. 
But we have never launched a county with this many churches to start with. God is doing something here in Saratoga County to equip Saratoga County to deal with the poverty and the child abuse that exists in this county and is hidden. Right? Saratoga County is known for Saratoga Racetrack. It's known for wealth. The county doesn't even want to admit there's a problem. Right? They don't want I mean, Saratoga County is also the home of Captain, which is the first program for homeless teens in, the United, in New York State, outside of New York City. But, you know, we don't have a problem with homeless kids in this county. <laughs> it, we just don't, right? I mean, we, we don't need Care Portal because we don't really have a problem. Well, all of a sudden they're figuring out, oh, yeah, we have a problem. Their caseworkers are starting to go, hey, wait, we need this program. We can't find the help. We don't want to pull the family. And so we're getting a chance to launch here. And that, for me, is so exciting. Um, so I want to read you the first request that went into Montgomery County. I may read this request everywhere I go for the rest of my life because this request, in so many ways, touches my heart. A 17-year-old male youth is returning home from residential placement and inpatient addiction treatment. Prior to placement, the youth was living with his father, who was a heroin addict. During this time, the youth lived with his father. He was exposed to unsavory characters, used to traffic drugs, did not attend school, and used drugs and alcohol himself. The youth witnessed his father overdose and be carried out of his home in a body bag. The traumatizing events led the youth down a scary path. The youth did not care about his life or what he was doing. He was stealing from members of the community and dealing drugs because this was the life he was shown. His mother reached out to support from DSS. I want you to stop and think about that for the moment. Mom called Child Protective Services for help on her own kid. That was how desperate she was. Uh, she was concerned about his <coughs> health and addiction concerns, and the department placed the child in care. Um, one year later, the youth has successfully completed residential placement and inpatient drug treatment. The youth has expressed a newfound happiness with life and excited to return home and start a happy and healthy future. The youth was living with his father prior to placement, and his mother does not have a bed, bed frame, sheets, or pillow for her son. He wasn't even sleeping on the couch. He was sleeping on a uh, fold-out lounge chair that you would use outside at a beach because his, her mother, his mother only had a, a small um, love seat in the house. The bed will prevent the youth from having to sleep on that and give some peace knowing that he has a place to put his head at night. Family is also asking for assistance in helping the youth financially to allow him to attain a driver's permit so he can get gainful employment. These are the families we work with, the ones that are desperate, but the ones that the caseworkers see the possibility of hope. Give the kid a bed. Give him a driver's license. Give him a chance to get on with his life and be a productive member of society. Right? And God's giving us that gift and opportunity to step into these hands. Sometimes we're going to be back there with the, the dad, with the drug addict, and it's not going to be as pretty. But most of the time, we're involved in places 
that are broken and wounded and messy, but the caseworker is already seeing hope, and so we get to bring more of it. One of the things I absolutely love about this church, I always look for sort of that, like, God wink that this is the church designed to do that, is these lamps out here, right? We turn on the lights up here. We don't need these lamps that are sitting here so decorative. But God says, we're a lamp. We're a light, right? When we go in, we might walk into a home, and they come to church, and they get involved, and their kid gets in our youth group, and life is wonderful, and everything happens. And we do have some of those stories in, in, in these counties that we serve in. But most of the time, we're carrying that littlest lantern of light and hope into such a dark place that it makes a difference anyway. Right? It just, God is so good about that. So I want to encourage you guys to step up and get involved. There is one more slide up there that's mine. Yep, how can you help? So there is a sign-up sheet in the back out there. There is some information about the next two things. So we have a training on poverty coming up um, next Monday night, August 21st. First, it is in Gilderland. We will be working on scheduling something up here. We just had one up here a little while ago. Um, but you're welcome to that one. And then in September 23rd, from 10 to 12 in the morning, it's a Saturday morning, we are doing our first community network gathering of the churches, um, the businesses that support us, and the agencies, including the case, county caseworkers. We'll be meeting together on um, that Saturday morning to kind of get to know each other, to learn a little bit. Each of our, our community network meetings have a little bit of educational piece to it. This one is going to talk about health insurance um, because so many of our families struggle with addiction and getting to doctor's appointments and um, other things that are health insurance related. And so our, the uh, MVP is going to come and share with us about what that looks like and how we can help them engage better with their health insurance companies when we're trying to help. Our goal here is not just to dump them a bed. Our goal here is to create a relationship with them and help tie them into the community that serves and help tie them and show them the value of God and love. Um, so I would love it, you know, to see you guys sign up to get involved. I understand Sarah is going to be running this ministry here, and I am so excited. We're going to be working this afternoon to get you guys up and moving and running and um, and then just holding our breath while we wait for the county to get trained and set a launch date. But it's, it's just such an exciting moment in Saratoga County. And I'm so excited to have you guys join us in this ministry. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my heart, to share God's heart, and for you guys to make that difference in somebody's life.